I think that there is as much inspiration for joy in beauty as there is in pain. Because I don't think that working as an Afro-bubblegumist or as somebody who really is like a joy champion means the absence of pain. Yeah. Like right now, we are all mourning the loss of Charlie Ouda, who was an immense source of light and joy, who was an immense source of privilege in his ability to kind of impersonate others, but also to go beyond that with his kindness and his friendliness, you know? And we, can, we are able to hold the pain of his loss right alongside the joy of his life. So I don't think Afro-bubblegum is an absence of pain. I think it is the inclusion of it, but knowing that it is held within like a vessel of joy. Listeners, we really hope that you've been enjoying the new content in 2024. I really need your help, though. We would love it if you would make sure that you are subscribed, following, and sharing the show. Would you just take like 10 seconds today and share an episode that you loved with someone you know? If you didn't love it, don't worry about it. But if you loved it, please share it. It really, really helps us more than you know. Make sure you're following, subscribing. All of those things really help us to continue the work of bringing joy and justice to you. So we would love it if you do it. And if you do it, we'll keep on talking. We'll keep showing up. Thanks so much. Salam and hello, everyone. My name is Lily Bukada Piper. And as always, I'm so grateful that you joined us today. I hope like you know, my family, we, we love a good movie. You know, Friday nights growing up for our Ethiopian family in the U.S. was usually family movie night. And I have to say, in heavy rotation were two films. One, Freaky Friday, story of, you know, these twins who get switched up at birth. And then the second one, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Neither one of them had anything to do with one another, but I have to say both of them felt safe for my immigrant parents and it gave us a chance to connect and, you know, bond all that, all that good stuff on a Friday night as a family. As a creative, I love stories wherever I find them, books on the screen, short stories, plays. And as I've come back to East Africa the last almost 18 years, it's been a great joy to see how much the film industry is growing here. Our cultures are ones of stories. Those are not new to us. Our cultures are of imagination, of joy, of connection, of transferring both our history and our identity from one generation to the next through stories. And now it's really exciting to me that as we gather as a family on Friday nights to watch movies, we have so many more choices than I did growing up. There are stories from my home of Ethiopia. There are stories from my current home of Kenya. Everywhere I turn, there seems to be more and more exciting stories to engage with and to share. And as a creative myself, it is thrilling to be able to be a part of this generation of storytellers. Today on the show, I am just so delighted that one of Kenya's and the world's brightest stars, a director of note, has joined us today to talk about her storytelling journey and what she is creating and bringing to global audiences. Wanuri Kahia is a director who has been making films for many years. You may know her work from Rafiki, which took global audiences by storm and was the first Kenyan film to be invited to the Cannes Film Festival. 
Or perhaps you know her beautiful documentary, For Our Land, which chronicles the impact and life of the Nobel Prize laureate Wangari Mathai. Just a brilliant film that for me is required reading if you're going to visit Kenya and understand this country. Wanuri's biography and uh, library of creative work is not limited to just documentaries or feature films. It includes short stories and books. It includes just beautiful stories of science fiction. And she really is not just a filmmaker. She's also a science fiction writer and a speaker. And it's just such a thrill to have her with us today. Her first film was actually from a whisper, her first feature film which was inspired by the true events of the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in both Kenya and Tanzania. And one of the things that I really appreciate about that film is that it brings such dignity and humanity to a really tragic story. By the time you're a few minutes into the movie, even though you know what's going to happen, you're so deeply embedded into the lives and the, what's happening with the characters. You know, their relationships to one another captures you just as deeply as the true events that inspired that film. She also has many projects in the works that are up and coming. She's the director for Washington Black for Hulu and 20th Century Fox, which completed principal photography in 2022 and is an adaptation of the book by Essie Edijan. Really looking forward to that production. She's also the director of Netflix's uh, film, Look Both Ways. Hopefully you caught that. It was one of the top streaming films for Netflix um, in 2022 and 23 and stars Lily Reinhart, Luke Wilson and Nia Long. And she's also attached to direct on this island, or sorry, once on this island for Disney, which is a really fun uh, musical that is now being brought to the screen. So it is really just a joy to welcome Wanuri today. I had the chance to meet her a few months ago at the Little Geek Festival in Lamu, where our mutual friend Mugambi Nthiga took us through so many of her works. And we had a chance to hear not just about the film she's created on screen, but the ethos and the philosophy that she has created called Afro Bubblegum. She considers herself an Afro Bubblegum activist. And I just can't wait to dig in and hear hear more about why it is so important to have fun, fierce, frivolous African art going beyond the boundaries and entering everywhere where stories are told. So it is just my great pleasure to welcome Wanuri to Salamat Hello. Karibu sana. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. So glad to have you here. There's so many things we can talk about. Mm -hmm. So I want to start at, I hope it would be a good beginning place, which is just to ask you, you know, when did you know that storytelling and imagination would be your life and your work? Um, if you ask my parents, I still don't know that storytelling <laughs> can be my life and my work. But um, I think when I was 16, I walked into a organization called Ace Communications that was run by the then Honorable Raphael Tuju. Um, and he was trying to start up a private TV company at the time under Moy, which was like never going to happen. But he created this amazing studio called Ace Communications. And my mother and him were friends. So when our family went to visit his family, I realized that this existed. I had never even, it had never even occurred to me that you could make films for a living. And because I had so often been accused of being a bookworm <laughs> and of a tele addict, when I saw this, I was just like, okay, those are not negatives. These just feel like my strengths can finally come together and play. And that's what happened. So after that, I was very, very keen on um, pursuing filmmaking in, in whatever form it, it was, it was going to take. In, in fact, 
right at the beginning, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be a filmmaker. Um, so I worked in TV, I worked in radio, I did internships in radio. But the thing that always stuck with me was my passion for story. And, and I very quickly realized that all I wanted to do was to figure out how to tell stories. I love that your storytelling passion was birthed out of a love of books because you've worked with different texts that have actually come from books, stories that have come from books, which we're going to talk about later. So tell us a little bit about that creative process then. You know, at 16, you're seeing, okay, there is a happy marriage between storytelling and books and imagination. And then, you know, what are the habits? What is the path then that your creative interests took to actually come to today? I don't know if I have a habit apart from being stubborn. I think that's the only thing that has really helped me sustain a creative career, mm. which is I refused to... Um, so my parents didn't think that filmmaking or anything creative made any sense. And I, and I appreciate that. They were trying to protect me. And also, having come out of um, Moy's era, it seemed to me that all artists had been done a major disservice. Mm. Guigo Adiongo was in exile. Um, people who were like instrumental in, in what was like the storytelling fabric of the 70s and the 80s were considered uh, treasonous. They were considered political criminals. They were considered anarchists. So art always had that connotation. So when you go to a parent here saying that you want to be a filmmaker, you might as well say you're anti-government. So I understand why they wanted me to do like a business degree, you know, something that I could, you know, live off of something. But the moment I went into um, university and I and I started my business degree, I catered it as much as possible toward film. I did everything that I could to make sure all the coursework was related to film, was about the business of film, was about like everything had to do with film. And then in the evenings I would do for no extra credit or anything, just I would do extracurricular courses in script writing and things, right? And then after that, I applied to do my master's at UCLA, which has a great film program. Um, and I applied for a scholarship so that I wouldn't be tied to my parents saying, what my limitations are, you know? Um, so at every point, I really tried to make sure that I pursued my passion. And that was my stubbornness. Mm. I refused to let go of the idea that I could be a filmmaker. I truly, truly rejected the idea. And, um, and it's hard being any creative and trying to be a working creative is incredibly hard. So you... Even if you're in your art, you find ways of sustaining yourself within that art. So I did documentaries about NGOs. I did, doc you know what I mean? Sure. I did anything that allowed me to pay my bills through this medium. And I would only work hard enough to be able to pay rent for maybe two to three months this is before children and responsibilities. <laughs> but I would be able to work for to be able to work on my script for two to three months. So I'd make money on an NGO job stop working, work on my own passion projects. And then when I ran out of money, I'd, I'd repeat. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. So really the only thing was like, it was, it was my stubbornness and I guess a, a, a fair dose of perseverance, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that has made it work, I think. So is it that stubbornness then about the kind of stories you wanted to see and wanted to make 
that led to the creation of this Afro bubblegum ideal. What, what gave birth to that philosophy? And tell I, us what it is. <laughs> okay. So Afro bubblegum is, I consider it a genre more than anything else. It's the idea that we have fun, fierce, frivolous, imagination-led, mm. art-for-art's-sake work that exists in Africa. It is not in reaction to the West. Mm. It is not because we have a hard or dangerous background or setting. It is because we are beings of joy and creativity. And I wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that with a phrase. And Afro bubblegum became the phrase to encapsulate the creative and joyful creation of art that comes out of Africa that is not based on tradition, it's not based on ceremony, it's based on us being creative beings, and that's all. Yeah. Right? Um, so what was the other question? So the question was, you know, was that stubbornness and like, I'm going to be a filmmaker, I'm going to be a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Did that then shift to now? And I'm going to make this kind of art. No, I, no. Um, I was, I've, I've never been stubborn about the kind of art I'm going to make. In fact, it took me a long time to discover that I have a style and the style has nothing to do with, um, the way I work or a particular, um, aesthetic. My style is that in, in every film or in every piece of work, my main character is looking for a sense of belonging yeah. and a sense of, of, of what home means to them. Uh, do they put home in a person? Do they put home in a place? Do they put home in themselves? So it's really just trying to unpack the idea of belonging that I feel has become my style, but nothing more than that. But it took me a long time to figure it out that my style is thematic, yeah. not aesthetic. That's actually quite beautiful because if I think about why we go to movies and why we consume art, I think oftentimes we're looking for a bit of ourselves or a bit of understanding or to make sense of the world. If you remember when we were talking with Titsi, you know, one of the things that I thought was so profound that someone complimented her on was saying that she helped us um, make sense of the world as it was in Zimbabwe at the moment that she was writing her novels or even bringing it to the current time. And so I think that idea of identifying and honing in a belonging is so universal so universal, which we see in Rafiki. So let me just jump to Rafiki, then I want to come back to Afro Bubblegum. You know, you examine this theme of young love, that's how I took it, in the film, which is so universal. I mean, everywhere you go, anywhere in the world, people can understand young love and have been on one side of the coin. Um, what did you want your audiences to feel when they saw the story of Ziki and Kenna? What was it that you wanted them to live with? All I wanted to experience people audiences to experience in the creation of Rafiki was the, was the feeling of falling in love. Because um, as universal as it is, it's so unique to everybody. Mm. But I, 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 I'm almost hopeful that there's a particularly, particular essence or feeling of falling in loveness that feels similar to all of us, mm. whether it's butterflies, whether it's like uh, catching your breath, whatever it is, that actual feeling of falling in love was what I was trying to create in Rafiki. That's really more than anything what I wanted the audiences to take away. I have to say that the scene where they're in the van, um, when it's set up before before the events turn, it reminded me of how my husband proposed to me. Aww. Like of coming into a setting and being like, this is for me. Like Aww. this is so, ma this ordinary place is so magical because he proposed to me at this bench at our university campus that we walked by all the time. Oh. But all of a sudden, 
because of, you know, a little bit of candle, a little bit of flower, it transformed. And so it just brought me back to that moment. So thank you for that. Because <laughs> there were images in that film also that brought us to that feeling, um, of course, which I'm sure is what the director is trying to, or you were trying to get us to do. And um, that film, you know, made waves. It caused conversation. It's still causing conversation, I think. It's, it's a film that when people... I know outside of Kenya, uh, in other parts of the continent, I'll just go use my Ethiopia because that's where I'm most familiar. When we talk about films, there hasn't been a film like Rafiki for Ethiopia yet. So in addition to what maybe what you want audiences to feel, what did you want maybe the invitation to be to your fellow filmmakers across the continent with Rafiki? Well, my job is never for anybody to do anything. Mm -hmm. My job is really, uh, there's this, again, because you brought Titsi up, there's this really amazing conversation we were having with Titsi when, in, in Lamu. And also very much so with Blinky Bill, who's very much of the same mindset, which is simple. Stories exist in a different ether, mm. right? And the whole ambition of a story is to be told. And so stories move around trying to find a host who can tell them, right? And if you're open as a storyteller, then the story will come through you and will be told and it will fulfill its destiny. Mm. But the story has a destiny, right? Yeah. I was just open at that time for this story to come and fulfill its destiny. And it's whether now that it has come to its own life, what it does is its choice. How it influences work or doesn't is, is now in the lifespan of the story. My job was just to be the host. Mm. It wasn't to inspire other hosts. It wasn't to, you know what I mean? Yeah. My job is really just to be open and vulnerable and to be a medium for stories to come through. So when you're thinking about being a host and being a conduit for an idea, a story, a spark, and then you think about Afro-Bubblegum and being an Afro-Bubblegum-ist, you talk about defining that with a couple of questions of whether we know that the, the art speaks to that genre. So I want to read you the questions that I heard you say in a TED Talk about whether or not I, I adapted them slightly. Okay, that's what going. I want to hear. No, that's okay. Yeah. I, that's mm. exactly my question. So, you know, are the Africans on screen healthy? Are they financially stable and not in need of saving? And then third, are they having fun and enjoying life? So I guess my, my question is exactly that. Have you amended, adapted, updated, added? Well, I think the questions are, are any of the Africans in need of saving? Mm -hmm. Are they hopeless, desperate, or lost? Are they sick or dying? Right? Um, and if the art is, if, if it's no to two or more of those questions, then your, your work is Afro-Bubblegum, right? But we did, just like the Bechdel test that is really a feminist test for film, we really needed a joy test for African and, and not only African, but work that about people of color, right? Are they needing? Are they in need of saving? And in Africa, and for African Americans, it's also become: Are they involved in drugs? Of course. You know what I mean? Or are they dying at the end of police brutality? Because those things exist. Yes. I would love to open up the forum so that we can also be outside of the existences and images of violence. 
outside of our ideas of, of, of pain and suffering. I would love to create images that for me represent utopia. And for me, utopia is a really simple definition. It's a space that is free of political struggle. It's a place that is free of isms. So it doesn't mean that we don't die of disease or we don't suffer the tragic loss of people. It just means that the, we can breathe without having to define our identity as in a gender form, mm -hmm. in a race form, in a tribe form, in a religion form. It's just free of that social kind of oppression and, and separation that continues to exist for us. So in the work that I try and create, I'm really truly looking for spaces of utopia. How do we create our utopia? Because more than ever, I truly think the people of color need not only to have the light at the end of the tunnel, but to see it, to see what this light is, what it feels like, how does it, how does it manifest? What does it look like? What does it feel in a day? What is the light? It can't just be a pinprick. It has to have color. It has to have grace. It has to have music. It has to have personalities. It has to have people we want to come home to. Mm. So what is that? How can we create those utopias so that we know what we're so desperately working toward? You know? Absolutely. I mean... Again, when you, your words alone paint a picture for me, they're taking me, where do I find that? So I'm mm -hmm. thinking about where is that light in my own life? Mm -hmm. As a creator, where do you go when you need to be surrounded by that to fuel you? Because the political struggle is real. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they, they exist. We live in that. We're sitting in it at all mm -hmm. times. Right? Whether we give it voice or power, we're mm -hmm. sitting in it. Mm -hmm. Given that you're a person who's you know, subject to all of the same things that all of us are, political movements, cultural moments. Right now, the, 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 once again, the cries against femicide and to end that are in our ears. Mm -hmm. In that moment, when we're, are there places that you go to to make sure that your joy cup, you know, is full, that that light is still making its way in? I think, yes, 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 yes. I mean, my family gives me an immense amount of joy, um, as do my friends. I have a great source of of. of first women in my life that I adore more than anything. Um, but apart from that, I love going to places that give that that are that are visually stunning and 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 that's one of the reasons I think Kenya is such an amazing place mm -hmm. to live. Um, so going to the ocean and immersing yourself in water feels kind of cleansing mm -hmm. and and mothering for me. Um, but but also, I truly believe in rage. Mm. I think that rage is a source of joy and release. I think without rage, we cannot have joy. And there was a joyful rage about being amidst 10,000 people walking against femicide in the march in Nairobi. Absolutely. There was a joy in that. There was a joy and a release in screaming. There was a joy and a rage and a, and a truly kind of royal rage about the outcry and the need for the outcry. So I, I, I think that there is as much inspiration for joy in beauty as there is in pain. 
because I don't think that working as an Afro bubblegumist or as somebody who really is like a joy champion means the absence of pain. Yeah. Like right now, we are all mourning the loss of Charlie Ouda, who was an immense source of light and joy, who was an immense source of privilege in his ability to kind of impersonate others, but also to go beyond that with his kindness and his friendliness, you know? And we can, we are able to hold the pain of his loss right alongside the joy of his life. So I don't think Afro bubblegum is an absence of pain. Mm. I think it is the inclusion of it, but knowing that it is held within like mm, a vessel of joy. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for giving us a different way to sit with the pain that so many of us often are navigating. And it's been actually quite a moving thing for me. I didn't know Charlie, but it's been really moving for me to see the tributes pouring in for him, the way people are celebrating his life and his work. The, the pictures people are posting are touched with joy. I mean, it's just really moving as somebody out on the outside looking in. So that idea of holding those two together, I think absolutely that's life. That is the life that we live. So I want to talk about another place where I feel like I saw that pain and that joy and in, in the story you told of Wangari Mathai, the documentary for our land. Um, I'm, I just I'm, I love we all hopefully love Wangari and, and her work. And, and I had a chance to interview her daughter, Wanjira, a few years ago. And the way she speaks of her mother is touched step by step, both in joy, admiration, awe, loss. I mean, all of that together. But one thing that struck me about the movie that I felt where you were infusing that joy was through the choice of your music. Just from the very first opening, there is this lightness to the music. And there are definitely somber and um, heavy themes in the movie because it's her life and what happened to her. But I'd love to hear from you about your choice and your creative process with music. You've already talked about Blinky Bill and some of the extraordinary work he's doing as a visual artist as well as a musician. And I think some of his music was in some of your other work as well. But I would just love to hear what role music plays for you and as a director when you're putting together a film. I have always had such a beautiful and strong relationship with music. Um, so I try and include music in, in everything that I do in one way or another because I think that it helps express not only where we are on our emotional journey, but it helps us get a context of the world that we're in, mm. right? Um, it helps situate the person or the character or uh, their ideology in a very, very subtle way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so music is as much a language in film as the visuals are. Um, and for Wagare Mathai, we opened with a Ikoyo song because she was talking about a very specific time period. Um, she she loves Hagekoyo culture and she she actually starts and ends the film by telling a story, mm. a, a folktale uh, that the Hagekoyo people have shared over the years. So it was it just seemed fitting to start the film or her show or her documentary with the sound of her people. Um, so that's how it helped contextualize her life and who she was. Yeah, it was really lovely. Um, and I love that the opening and the ending both end with what felt like to me a very joyful song. And in, in a way, almost, uh, you know, you, there are subtitles there to help us understand when, when 
that narration is not in English, but I love that the songs stood on their own, almost as, I don't know, um, an envelope to her story and to who she was. And um, yeah, thank you for that. I, I really just loved that, that film. Um, so, you, you know, you've talked about, you know, the realities that we live in and that you're not avoiding those, you're, you're sitting in them. And so I'm curious about how Afro bubblegum works for you or how you incorporate that, or if you do, when you're working with subjects that are not from the continent, you know, your career is not just in the continent, it's worldwide. So tell me how that genre of philosophy enters into your work when you're working with subjects that are non-African? So the subject for me that I work the most in or I like to, I, I live in, is joy, hope, and belonging. So it doesn't matter what project I'm, I work on, whether it's um, an Afro bubblegum con uh, a project with people of color or on the continent, or whether it is of non-melanated people from around the world. In everything, it's hope, joy, and and belonging that's that's the thing that i keep at the heart of everything i felt that in um look both ways um i loved that question of kind of the what if and and how our lives could change and that and would i belong and as a mother myself i try and tell my kids all the time you know it's not necessarily about making the right decision it's just the next right thing for you because the, the path is right <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. the path is long and and it could it will change and I, I definitely felt that in a in a film that I would say for me was so different than some of your other work but just as fun ask those questions you know and and let us examine our lives and another theme that I haven't yet seen on film but please correct me if I'm wrong but I've heard you talk about your in your 2019 design in Daba Talk, you, you talked about black men in such a powerful way. And you talked about the 1970s and 80s Afro photo comics and what they spoke to you and, and what you loved about them. And you talked about the Wadabe people of Niger and Chad and these beautiful um, practices that were embedded in their culture that celebrated the black men and in particular, their, even their bodies. So is there a black male lead opportunity we can see you in soon or something you're directing that kind of continues to celebrate the black men? Yeah. Washington Black is a story about a young black boy who turns into an, an amazing young man and in his own discovery of uh, a world of creativity in a world of joy, in a world that is led by his immense heart and spirit and courage. So that would be one of, it would be the first um, film or oh, TV show that I've, I've worked on that has um, a leading male mostly. And I'm really, really excited about it yeah. because I, I got to work with just about, just amazing actors mm. um, in extraordinary locations, but based on such a great book that was adapted in such a remarkable, astonishing way by Selwyn Hines. Um, so there's so much to build on that project that I, I'm, I'm truly excited of, of, of when it comes out. And um, I had the opportunity to work with now currently uh, nominated Sterling K. Brown, who's also an executive producer on the show, but he's also one of the leads in the in the film in the show. Um, and and just being able to work with such talent who are not only just amazing at their work, but also incredible human beings at the same time, really is just, um, it makes, it just makes the world feel right. Mm. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to see that. I'm a huge Sterling K. Brown fan. I love that he's being celebrated in such big ways. Did that feel different to you, having a male subject at the center of this story than your previous projects? No, it didn't feel different to me uh, because of this particular character that was in that's in the book and was adapted by Selwyn. Um, so this character had just such a he his heart is so big um, and so sensitive and and w- full of such tenderness mm. that it this there's there's no better man to have um, tried to portray mm. on the screen. Um, and truly no better actors who want, who I can't wait to see it. We'll be watching and waiting. So, you know, one of the, we've talked a little bit about For Our Land, but I haven't yet mentioned Pumzi, this fantastic science fiction about a dystopian future with a young girl at its center. Um, and then I, I want to just talk about how do you blend these futuristic themes with sometimes factual history? You know, I, I, one of the things that I am touched by but with Pumzi, there are these themes of memory, um, of, of course, the, the climate, the earth, what we're doing, of, of this feminine power that seems to be just a subtle undertone. It's not in your face, but it's there. The, the um, cinematography is beautiful. It really is almost its own character for me. It felt like, oh, this is another character to seeing the amazing landscapes. When, when you're thinking about weaving such powerful imagery, um, I don't know, I couldn't sit still in that film. I don't know if that makes sense. I was like, I felt like I'd sit up and pay attention if I, lest I miss something, you know? So when you're researching and trying to weave those kind of stories, take us through that process, especially when you're doing something that felt like to me had not yet been done for our continent and for our region that really depicted images we could recognize, people we could recognize, stories that were important, but yet we hadn't seen it yet on film. First, I don't believe anything is new under the sun, yeah? Mm. Um, and all of that was shot on on our continent so everything we had seen before everything we had seen before it was it was always there and it will always be there for us to shoot and that's why i truly love uh traveling across africa because there's nothing more inspiring and there's there's no landscapes more just like humbling and just like awe-inspiring but also just like make you feel so connected to to such a great continent but also so small at the same time. Um, so our storytelling, I don't believe in firsts because we've always been. So I'm just the next generation of doing it in this way. So I know we have uh, science fiction as part of our mythical lore. I know we have fantasy as part of our, um, our, our ideology and our creation myths. I actually started calling it mythical fiction because uh, what when we talk about gods or spirits, we're not talking about, <laughs> it's not a story. It's not magic. Mm. These are deep myths that are related to our cultures that we're trying to manifest, right? So putting myself in a space that is futuristic is also not really hard because first, all you do is look around where you are. Um, so within the dump site in Pumzi, that was kind of based on the dump site in Dandora, which is like a sprawling mountain, which is incredibly painful, but also is a huge industry 
that supports so many lives and destroys so many lives at the same time. So um, when Asha comes out and she sees, the first thing she sees is this like trash being dumped out. That really is acknowledging some of the things that we're doing to ourselves in our own country. So that, that could have been here. In fact, I had wanted to shoot it there. And then when you look at the, the deserts and the plains that she walks up across, that for me had been inspired by Lake Magadi and it's the pinkness of the mm -hmm. salt lake. And that's where I would have wanted to shoot too, you know? Uh, we ended up shooting it in South Africa because that's where the producers were. But in Kenya, those futuristic things would have looked more familiar to us mm. in that way. Um, and now they just look more familiar in, in a different way, yeah. right? But they all exist. So I really look and pay attention to the world around me first um, and use it as a source of inspiration. Because Pumzi came out, was, was inspired by a really random thought, which was, um, we were driving back from Nyere with my, I think, was I? Yeah, I think we were still, yeah, my, my current husband, right? Mm -hmm. And when, you know, whenever you're coming back, there are these spaces where that people are asking you to buy vegetables and fruits along the side of the road. And I was just like, I wonder how, what would it be like if they were selling mountain air? You know, mm -hmm. what if they were selling fresh air for us to go back into Nairobi with? That's mm -hmm. That's all that happened. Yeah. And then that grew into a whole story because I was just like, I just kept on pursuing it. But also I found that the things that I was discussing in that one small like kernel of a thought also came up in other parts of my life where I remember saying, ah, it really bothers me that water, that we pay for water. And a friend of mine was like, no, it shouldn't. I mean, of course we pay for water. I said, it's, it's a natural resource. We should yeah. never have to pay for a natural resource. Mm -hmm. Like we should never have to pay for air, yeah. you know? Um, and this is before I realized that there are oxygen bars that exist around the world. So all of these just happened. It, it happens in small little ideas. And then you start to poke at them. And then you realize there's oxygen bars. And then you realize that water is being sold like gold to Coca-Cola and Nestle. And then, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and then your story comes about. Yeah. You well, know? It reminds me of what you said at the beginning about the stories there looking the for a host. There. So you're right. So then it's just, you know, it takes you to the next stop. And then let me show you this one, right? Yeah. <laughs> let me invite you to look at this. And yeah. It's quite a powerful thought if we slowed down enough to maybe pay attention. What, yeah. what else might come visit us? Yeah. If we, we allowed for it, it's really... I'm going to be troubled by that now <laughs> and you just slow down so I can hear and understand and see the ideas that are coming to us. So when you, when you think about the different genres that you've also worked within and between, is there a different approach for the idea? And you've, you've alluded to this in terms of like hope, belonging and joy being anchors for your work, whatever kind of subject is, but then between genres, are you having to mine more intentionally when you're thinking about a project like once upon this island or if you're looking at a project like Look Both Ways, mm. does the process of getting to those anchors feel different to you between the genres? No, it doesn't feel different because it's all about belonging. Yeah. And if it's about belonging, it, it's all about people first. And if it's all about people first, then, then we can make humans real humans, mm. right? Yeah. Um, because stories come because we exist. That's actually why we're different than, yeah. than 
than any other species on the planet is because we have an, ab an ability to tell and share stories. Um, and that creates communal trust or community trust or um, safeguards for us to navigate the world that we live in in a way that other other animals and other species mm. can't, mm. right? So if we know that stories are born of of through people first, then if we understand that human in the story, then we we understand a universal context, because as amazing and as brilliant and as unique as we think that we are, we all still only have five senses, yeah. right? We all still have a very, very defined host of emotions that are that our therapists can tell us that what we're feeling. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, if I sit down and I am creating a story or even writing a script, and as I'm writing or creating, I know that this emotion is pure. Mm -hmm. I know that I felt pain writing it. I felt sadness or I felt joy or I felt happiness or I felt excitement. I'm not that unique an individual that nobody else will feel the very same thing. Yeah. So I have to trust myself and my gut first. Is this creating an emotional response within me? And if it is doing that, then I trust that to be enough because I'm not that special and I'm not that yeah. unique. I'm I'm just pondering on that because I, I'm thinking about how though within the film industry there's so many you know genres subgenres every country's kind of got its maybe within itself then a multitude of other subgenres is there a place where you're thinking about you know so there's this universality right, you're speaking of of what it evokes in you as a creator are there places though that you yet have not explored within um, you know things you've brought to life is one thing that have gotten greenlit and funded. But in terms of just this, um, I don't know what I'm trying to ask. I guess I just want to know if there are places that you don't, you haven't yet explored that you want to emotions that while universal, you haven't yet had a chance to really explore in a creative sense. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, they all come back to the same theme, but there's uh, war stories that mm. I would love to tell. Mm. Um, I would love to be involved in a thrill and not a horror. <laughs> There's a big difference, yes, yes. right? Yes, I'm not about gore, yeah. but I am about like a good thrill, mm. you know? Um, I have done a romantic comedy, but I wouldn't mind visiting another one. And and truly, I want to live more in science fiction and fantasy. What, what does that give you in particular? Science fiction yeah. and fantasy? Um, well, I love fantasy, especially um, African futurism. In, in, in its identity, which is based on the myths, legends, creatures, ideologies that are based in Africa. Uh, that's a huge space that I would, I would love to not only explore, kind of just live in. Mm. I really want to live in um, African futurism as, as a genre in my work. I really want that to be some of the, the most um, prolific work that comes through me, inshallah. Right. I also would love. Um, there's just this. There's so much to explore in this continent. There is endless. <laughs> yeah, there's endless stories to mine, and endless stories that have been told or been told in 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 one way. And it would be great if the perspective changed. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm very curious first about the world that we currently inhabit, right? and also the future of the world that we inhabit, right? Um, so
So uh, I would science fiction because I would love to explore what I call mid future. Yeah. It's not a hundred years or two hundred, like twenty five years or fifty yeah. years. You know what I mean? Into the future, hundred percent. I mean, if I look at what's different between my mother mm-hmm. and I, it's 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 radical. It's a new world. And my grandmother too. It's mm-hmm. just a it's, it's a multiple worlds. I I love that idea. Mid future. I've not heard that before. That's a great way to frame it. Um, I want to shift a little bit to you now. Mm-hmm. Um, People have also written a lot about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was kind of struck when you, when we Googled and started to research a bit more, you know, so many different headlines about you have been written about your work, less about you as a person, but more about your work, what you're doing this world, what you're contributing. And, but I was also struck by the variety of headlines that are attached to you. And of course, I'm sure people interview you, then they put something out. Um, but I was curious if you resonate with the way that you are characterized sometimes. I so, have no idea how I'm characterized. Well, let me give you an idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how fun this will be. But some of this, the headlines that stuck out to me, and I'm curious if anybody got it right. So here are some ones that I, that I saw. Wanuri Kahiu's quest to tell new African stories. Another one, Fed it abroad, shunned at home. The story of Wanuri Kahiu. 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 Director of Rafiki. Netflix's current second-ranking movie has a Kenyan director. Surprise uh, title there. The Kenyan film director taking on the world with positive stories of black life. And Kenyan director Wanuri Kahio is fun, fierce, frivolous, and timely. Any of those titles get you right? Um, Oh... I, I have no idea. I, I honestly, I honestly, I, if I was writing a headline of myself, would I use any of those words? No, 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 but they exist and that's fine too. Um, I have, I actually, uh, I don't, I don't have much of an opinion about, uh, about that. Yeah, sure. Right? Fair enough. Um, I, I like, and, and this is a weird one. I do like that I'm being referred to as a Kenyan director. Right. Rather than yeah. just a director, okay. because I think that even in this time of division, I, I am so proud of my identity and I'm so proud of where I come from. And I have and I feel like that has been the grounding that has allowed me to tell stories. So I do like that that I am Kenyan, but also it it. I think it does a thing because there's sometimes that I'm not too sure what they mean by Kenyan. Do they mean coming from a small country in Africa mm-hmm. or coming from an impactful part of the world or coming from global south or black or I have, I, have, I have no idea what identity people associate Kenya with because the only identity I associate Kenya with is love and compassion and pain yes. and hardship, but a lot of joy and a lot of exploration and a lot of larger than lifeness that I could never even begin to fully expand on, you know? The things that I've learned through just learning about Kenya has been more immense than anything else. Um, including the, like the Trukana have been, have been a huge source of fascination for me, right? The Trukana people, the Trukana culture, the Barana calendar. Um, they've been like, it's, it's 
and even my my own traditions and my own culture have been a huge source of like exploration and fascination to me. So I feel like that's the only definition that I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I am Kenyan. Yeah. 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 You got that part right because it speaks to it speaks to personal and it speaks to professional. So I think it's the only word that combines my home, my identity, and my belonging, but also my joy and my yeah. hope. It goes back to those anchors again. It's quite yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take that in mind when we have to name this episode. We might have to run it by you first. Um, you know, as we close, I would just love to hear kind of what it's meant for you at this moment. People are recognizing and appreciating your work. I loved some of what I saw and read when you were given the Spirit of Cinema Award at the International Film Festival in Kerala. Just a really lovely celebration there generally. But then the words that they used to capture your work and what it meant. What, what do moments like that and appreciation like that, what does that mean to you as an artist? I think what was so great about Kerala was being in a space that truly has a great and historic filmmaking culture mm. and an appreciation for film. I have never in my life been around such an enthusiastic audience. It looked like you were having fun. It was As, beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful because it was, it, I, I, I don't consider myself like a celebrity. I don't consider myself super well known. I'm behind the camera. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a reason I'm behind the camera, <laughs> you know? Um, so when people recognize him, it's just like, oh, oh, okay. You know what I mean? It's always, it always is kind of a surprise. Yeah. But to be hailed as a celebrity in this place that has no context, to me, yeah. <laughs> was, I, I felt, I was constantly giggling through Kerala because I was just like, oh, <laughs> this is the most ridiculous yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and my and my family found it even more hilarious than I did. <laughs> so there was, so it was it's it's such it's such an amazing thing first for your work to be recognized anywhere. It's 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 an honor to be recognized um, for the work to be recognized outside of the country because it means that we have created language that travels, and we've created stories that connect. And we've created characters that have a sense of belonging in any household that they live in. I think there's that's that. That's pretty awesome, yeah. Right? Um, and, I'm, and, and I am even more excited about work traveling within Africa and within Kenya. I cannot wait for the work that I do to travel through Africa because that's where my... That's where my roots are. That's where my 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 core and my inspiration and and my health and is is. It's based in that. Um, so I'm I'm as excited for that to happen. Can I ask you? Do you think this place is ready for what you need to then do the work that you want to do? You you do hear people having to make choices, hard choices about I've got to go here because that's where the resources, funding, or I need to be in the room. Is there the infrastructure ecosystem here for all those things that you speak about so profoundly to take flight? There is the ecostructure here for a strong, thriving film industry. And it doesn't, it doesn't take much, but just looking at other small, thriving film industries from New Zealand, which is like a huge billions of dollars of its GDP is through film. And it's through uh, largely through the work of one filmmaker who's brought the work to New Zealand. So that is possible. Yes, I believe in that. 
um, I believe we have the capacity to start to appreciate and change our language around arts and um, our appreciation of art, but whether it's in music, whether it's in actual art, whether it's in filmmaking, that is happening and I can see has happened and will continue to happen, right? Um, currently, is there an opportunity to be financially successful? I think that's there is to an extent and then it, there is a cap, right? And I'm very excited for when those caps are lifted, for when that ceiling is broken. And for when we start spending the kind of money that it is deserving of our art, but creates the audience in, that can sustain it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the audience is I, just the audiences to me that feel like they're here, we're here. But I think that distribution channel for me is always like, where can I see this film that I hear about or write about it, you know, even from across the continent or mm. next door in Uganda or Tanzania. Like, mm. how do I get to see those films? Mm. So I look forward to that day. I, I think you're right. The time is now. It's always been now. Mm. And and we look forward to when we can just really, truly engage in those stories. I mean, again, going back to my family movie nights, they were always mm. so like, what can we find, you know? But now it's growing and it's getting better. So, yeah. I, I really think I'm going to that. adopt that family movie night. Yeah. I think it's such a great idea. <laughs> we try. We really try. I'm really, really going to adopt it within our family. Yeah. Well, if you need any Ethiopian films, let me know because I have all Yay. of them still on DVD because we're like, <laughs> we'll never find these again. <laughs> so, you know, Onuri, what, what is next for you? When can we next see your work? Um, yeah. What's, what's up for you in 2024? Um, for 2024, I'm spending a lot of time writing and developing new projects or rewriting old projects mm -hmm. and making sure that they're right to move to the next stages. Um, hopefully Washington Black um, will be out within the next two years. It's still, there's still a lot of work to do because it's such a big and, and visual effect heavy show. Yeah. Um, and that's really my concentration. Okay. We look forward to that. We'll be following. You don't have much on social media, I have to say. You don't post no. much, but other people post about you. So we'll be following. I'm looking forward <laughs> to the next time we get to enjoy your work. Um, you really bring us joy. You bring us belonging. And I thank you for that. Truly, when I've watched your films, both just as a regular person, then in preparation for this, I'm just amazed at what you've been able to do in such a short window of time. That stubbornness has served you well because you have pushed things into our worlds that I don't think we would have otherwise. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for those imaginative, joyful places thank you've created you. for us. I really um, appreciate so the last questions we always ask every guest before we let them go, because we like to see the through line between our writers, our activists, our environmentalists, our directors. What's your favorite drink? Oh my gosh. Um, what is my, oh, uh, we just created a new drink in my okay. house. Yeah. It's called a coffee tonic. That's my okay. favorite. I cannot tell you Say the more. details. You can't no. tell us the details. Mm -mm, mm -mm. It's a secret family recipe. <laughs> is it cold or hot? It's cold. It's a cold, cold. coffee. Oh, okay. it's the best. Yeah. Okay. So we call it a coffee tonic. All right. All um, right. That is currently my favorite drink. It's non-alcoholic. It can be drank at any point of the day. And really, uh, because we have, we have such access to the, some of the best coffee. Yes. Yes. Um, it makes a really amazing drink. So, yeah. Well, as, as an Ethiopian whose country is the home of coffee, yeah. I feel like you should tell me, maybe off camera, <laughs> what is it I drink? And then lastly, I have, this is truly a question we have asked in all of our 83 episodes. What brings you joy? What brings me joy? Um, art. People. Friendships. Family. 
love, love bring me joy. Um, and with that, even the people who are have dearly departed, Charles Oda brought me joy through his work, uh, through his um, love of life, through the love of his partner, Shiro. That was a joyful thing to witness. Um, so sometimes even just watching others and, and watching their lives unfold gives me joy. Thank you, Anuri. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Listeners, what a treat. I just hope you'll take time to take this interview in, that you'll share it with friends. Um, what a wonderful opportunity just to reflect on all the beautiful, powerful, joyful things that exist in our hands as we get to live in this incredible continent and share her stories. So we'd love to hear from you. You can catch us on our DMs on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, you can email us the old school way, lily at salamandhello.com or producer at salamandhello.com. And until we meet again, be well. Hold on. Mm -hmm. I don't